Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 1. Histories in the air. The most interesting thing I have found about traveling is how hard it is to feel like I'm actually in a new place until I'm right in the thick of it. It is once the sights, sounds, and smells of a place finally sink in that I feel dialed into the soul of a city or country, and I'm left with an impression that lingers for years. And it's this last one in particular, smell that has stuck out to me as the one I am increasingly associating with my memories and impressions of the places I've visited. I can smell a bus rolling by in the city and briefly be back in the busy streets of Cairo, or catch a whiff of grinding metal in a subway station and in my mind be taken back to the beautiful stations of Moscow, or how the faint scent of a freshly lit match can transport me to the majestic churches of Budapest. And it is once I arrive in a new land and these smells begin to bombard me in my senses that I truly feel as though I am present. But by far, my favorite smells are those of the ever-faint yet detectable odors of history. And when I catch the scent, I can never help but to stop and breathe it all in. In places like Rome and Beijing, this scent can be found behind the multitude of smells offered up by the great and mighty metropolises. The bare bones of the ancient cities that once proudly stood are now hinted at behind layers of new histories which one must parse through and uncover like a historical archaeologist, constantly having to use what is left over to build a picture of what things may have looked like in the past, yet never truly able to compare it to the real thing. Other cities like Paris or Berlin wear their histories like an accessory or perfume, a nice accent to the history currently being made. A footnote to the city's current greatness, their histories selected and promoted by those in power to inspire a sense of identity amongst a diverse group of people who might otherwise have nothing else in common to unite them. Anyone would agree that the Louvre holds vast amounts of history within its impressive halls, but how much of that history is from or about the city of Paris or the nation of France? Moreover, what little real history exists about Paris or France is muddled by the agitation that is countless years of fighting amongst its neighbors. Let me give you an example. The citizens of Belgium might be delighted to know that there was indeed a tribe that the Romans called the Belgae, who inhabited the land that is modern-day Belgium thousands of years ago. They might even be proud to state that those people were brave warriors and all-around swell folk. Yet, in the end, they faced the same fate as most Gallic tribes of their day. They were conquered by Julius Caesar and the legions. The place they used to live became a Roman province populated by the few tribes the Romans didn't obliterate. Then, as a Frankish holding under the Carolingians, it was populated by Eastern Franks. Then various European powers ruled it, all populating it as well. Then the Hanseatic League came in from the Netherlands and had a spell of dominion, all the while Dutch people planting tulips all over the country. Then Napoleon and the French tried to take over the world and said, heck, why not start with Belgium? Until Belgium finally had enough and declared independence for itself in 1831. Hooray, Belgium. Now why tell you all this? 
Well, to make the point that the modern-day Belgians share very little with the Belgians of even 300 years ago, and even less with the Belgae that Caesar's campaigns obliterated in 58 BCE. There is no connection other than the name given to the place where these people once lived. Belgae music, food, and culture was seemingly wiped out or integrated by whatever culture moved in to replace them. They likely didn't even call themselves the Belgae. That's just what Caesar chose to name them. The link between the Belgae and the modern Belgian is strong in etymology and little else. Now, it may sound like I'm harping on a bit, and that is absolutely true. But I do it to make a very specific point. These kinds of histories are either so far back in time that we can merely glimpse them as they were through the layers of other histories that have come after, or were written through the lens of individual human accomplishments and written by and for the nations that have now handpicked the aspects of their history that best fits their chosen ideals. All this in an effort to establish an almost mythical image of an ideal citizen for the common folk to aspire towards, and thus work harder for the good of that nation and its legacy. I can think of no better example than America's views on the Founding Fathers, particularly George Washington. To illuminate any non-American listeners, one popular story about our beloved George is when in his youth he chopped down his father's prized cherry tree for reasons. The reasons are never really stated. But what's important is he was caught by dear old dad. Upon being asked if he had chopped the tree down by his very confused father, he famously uttered the line, I cannot tell a lie, thus confessing to his deed. Washington's father was so overwhelmed with American pride and joy that he couldn't bring himself to punish the young boy, rightfully recognizing that someday this boy might just go places with an honesty like that. Now, Washington was a lot of things, including a not-so-great general, but also a liar. Granted, he lied mostly to the British in order to defeat them, and I'm sure we can all understand that. But he still definitely did lie. Yet, most Americans still have this image of the honest and brilliant General Washington, who was so patriotic and believed in the ideals of the Constitution so deeply that he even freed his slaves on his deathbed. Oh right, he also owned slaves like a lot of them. Now don't get me wrong, Washington did many great things. He had an important impact in the American revolutionary effort and was much more cut out to be a president than he ever was to be a general. But his idolization is simply to paint this idealized American figure into the minds of modern Americans who look up to it as a beacon of patriotic ideals. Much like the Bell guy, Washington has become a symbol of national pride for things they didn't really do. The Bell guy never fought Rome for a free Belgium, and Washington never freed his slaves on his deathbed. Now this is all well and good, but these histories are constantly seen through a lens of wealthy and powerful male rulers and the occasional men, women, or nations who dare challenge them in their iron wills. Men who, after the conquering was done, often had their stories retold in a more flattering light in order to maintain power. Consequently, the kingdoms and nations they established looked to these deeds as noble and part of their cultural heritage. Now, I don't mean to insult or dismiss these types of histories. I myself have poured countless hours into podcasts and books consisting of nothing but these sorts of histories. The exploits of Caesar come to mind. And this podcast will indeed occasionally touch on those very kinds of histories. They are, after all, the most commonly told. 
But I state this to emphasize that oftentimes their scope is limited to the goals of a few powerful men. And while we will inevitably have to slog through countless important men, quote unquote, in our story, the women and indigenous tribes of Mexico have relentlessly fought to carve out their place in Mexican history as well. Unlike other countries, in my opinion, Mexico's relationship to its past is still very tangible and therefore slightly more immune to the mythologization at the hands of the nation. To finalize my point, I offer one more example. If you were to ask any modern-day Italian, they would undoubtedly agree that Rome was a great civilization, and they may very well be proud to live in a city where the Romans had their capital. And while I have no doubt that they are proud to live amongst the bones of a once mighty civilization, I feel it's safe to say that they are no longer the same Romans who spoke Latin. Likewise, we cannot look to modern Cairo and speak with the people that built the pyramids in their ancient language. Similarly with Francs in France, the Britons in Britain, and the Belgae in Belgium of previous mention, so on and so forth. In Mexico, however, you can absolutely still talk, eat, and drink with a Mexican. The histories of these other cultures is wielded to invoke a certain feeling of kinship to the people that used to live there, a feeling that has been carefully crafted by the nation-states that hold power today. While monarchs in the past had religions, governments today have patriotism. In my eyes, they are the same mechanisms attempting to reach the same goal legitimacy. And thus the majority of leaders in our modern era recognize that to be accepted by the modern man and woman, they must appeal to the past for legitimacy instead of some higher power. By convincing people to believe in a religion of their own nation's past, they are able to achieve the legitimacy we generally accept to this very day. The history selected is deep and inspiring and influential, but it lacks substance. You simply can't just go to a market in France one day and hear music the ancient francs were jamming to back in the celebrations of the coronations of Charlemagne, nor with any Germanic tribes in Germany or Celtiberians in Spain, and especially true of older cultures like the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians. In fact, very few, if any, ancient cultures have as tangible a past as the Mesoamericans. Upon reflecting more on this section, I realize that I have overlooked a potential challenger to the lofty title I am attempting to give Mexico of most tangible history. Indeed, India has been in close contact with its past for thousands of years, and I would like to make an exception for India to be included in the list of places where one can be fully immersed in and interact with history rather than just see it and hear about it. I get the distinct feeling that India will have a very similar vibe to what's going on in Mexico whenever I get the opportunity to visit. Now Mexico certainly has its fair share of national symbols and history of its own, but a deeper history also exists in every step taken. Now I may be a bit biased given that I was born in Mexico, but the way history literally hangs in the air ready for you to reach out and grasp it is unmatched in all my travels. For starters, a large number of foods, plants, and animals, nowadays commonplace in many distant countries, are originally from Mexico, such as squash, corn, and chocolate, to name but a few. So think about just how long chocolate aromas and smells have been permeating the Mexican air. Now I say this to dramatic effect, as I know physics won't allow my statement to make any logical sense, but you hopefully get my meaning. 
History is alive and well in Mexico for those willing to reach for it and has been for a very long time. This history is firmly tied to the cultural and religious practices of the ancient peoples who were displaced and driven to the brink of extinction by European colonization and diseases. These cultures still cling to life with passionate determination, which is why in Mexico we say that the Catholic conversion was a compromise. In fact, while there is no doubt that the average evangelized Mexican will say that they have only one God, they will also unflinchingly praise the images of their local patron saints with equal and sometimes greater reverence as they do images of Jesus. This concept of a one God is nothing new to the people of Mexico, why the very sun had been worshipped for thousands of years, and to the natives it must have seemed like an easy switch from a sun god to a Judeo-Christian god, as the sun deities often had many children or relatives whom they worked or clashed with. The indigenous names might have changed, but many customs and rituals held fast, manifesting in countless local saints taking over the duties and roles of the nature deities that they replaced. I can think of no better example than the Virgen de Guadalupe, who may have replaced female harvest and fertility deities in the eyes of the highly religious Indios that populated the Viceroyalty of Nueva España. And this is just one of the many vestiges of polytheism still deeply ingrained in the Mexican psyche. Vestiges which were undoubtedly resisted at first, then tolerated, and eventually encouraged by the clergy in an effort to pacify and control the unruly tribes they encountered. Many of these tribes were used to constant warfare with each other and thus were effective warriors who naturally resisted external rule. But the priests realized that they were highly devout and believed in countless gods for things as mundane as a specific hill to natural phenomenon like the sun and the rain gods. Like most European missionaries, they realized that if they could shift this commitment from the native deities to the Catholic Church, then the task of converting them into productive citizen workers of the Spanish Empire would practically complete itself. One can see for themselves when visiting Mexico the dizzying number of saints, martyrs, and holy figures equally venerated at their own altars. Saints for everything from a saint for a specific kind of ailment, to a saint in honor of a particularly beloved bishop or nun. You will see Greek saints, Italian saints, African saints, you name it. Someone in Mexico probably has a saint for it and they venerate it. In an effort to save their customs and identities, the conquered tribes sacrificed their own deities and embraced the many saints or santas with the same religious passion and fervor. Catholicism already recognized the existence of saints, and the missionaries and bishops that arrived to convert the natives were savvy enough to look the other way or even promote this form of conversion in an effort to pacify the warrior and priest class of elites, thus establishing dominion over the remaining populations, able to press them into noble service of enriching the Spanish Empire by working, and often dying, in the plantations or mines that the Spanish imported. The colonized natives may have given up their freedom and lives, but their rituals and customs, and thus their self-identities, would be successfully preserved into the generations to come. It is therefore no coincidence that the conquered natives and the modern Mexicans have such a similar view of religion, and many still feel a direct link to the peoples that lived there thousands of years ago, many still having deep links to those peoples. Every region of Mexico has a similar story to tell, 
and every state has a history rich with this drama of conflict, compromise, devotion, and sacrifice. So much sacrifice. One could even say that the religion of Mexico has always been and continues to be one of sacrifice. Not only in the obvious examples of the natives sacrificing the names of their gods, but also in the infamous religious sacrifices of the pre-Columbian cultures, a topic we will discuss in length on this podcast, especially when we talk about the Mayans and the Aztecs, but also in the way many martyrs, both in biblical and regional history, have been recognized as saints in Mexico. Mexicans just love a well-made sacrifice, and I can't say I'm any different. If you've ever had a really good Mexican salsa or chilies, you will understand this axiom can even go towards our foods. Sacrifices can be made in many ways and forms, and Mexico is a country absolutely forged by them. Many things were sacrificed by the early Mesoamerican Indians that encountered the Europeans, but enough layers have survived the years of historical buildup that we can still make out many of the shapes, sounds, and aromas of the native Mesoamericans. While on the subject, to this day, my favorite places to visit in Mexico are often the dozens of churches, cathedrals, chapels, and convents that dominate urban cityscapes. The exteriors are an exploration of countless different European styles mixed with indigenous and regional variations that established an artistic identity distinct to every pueblo. The interiors range anywhere from decorated as if they were rooms in the Palace of Versailles to completely made of rock or marble, to Roman or Greek-inspired altars with grand columns. Mexico was lucky enough to be colonized during what might have been the richest and most ostentatious period of the Catholic Church, with the many wealthy missionary orders like the Augustinians and Jesuits following the successful incursion made by the Francescans. The full weight of European artwork and architecture was thus brought to bear on the unsuspecting populace. The number of different styles that resulted are astonishing to the modern eye and even more impressive to witness in person. Even if one isn't religious, as long as one is respectful of the space, visiting churches is absolutely allowed, and I highly recommend it. As someone who was born both a Mexican and a Catholic, and despite never having been very practicing of it and considering myself more agnostic, I immediately find a majestic kind of grace to these towering monuments of human effort and devotion. As a result of this unspoken compromise between the natives and their Spanish overlords, Mexico holds the record for the highest density of spoken and UNESCO-recognized native languages of any country in the world. There are around 68 active tribes and their languages, with over 350 regional variations recognized all living in every state of the Republic. This is remarkable. To be able to hear Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, spoken by 1.5 million people, or the 2.5 million that speak Mayan languages, and while there is going to be some unavoidable lingual drift over the centuries, it isn't to the extent of a dead language like Latin in the Roman Empire. May it rest in peace. We can similarly do so with dozens of other languages in Mexico, although an increasing number of them have been designated as endangered due to exploitative industries, poverty, and neglect, threatening the very tribes that speak them. What's most incredible, however, is that some of these people are still practicing many of the same customs and traditions they did hundreds if not thousands of years ago. 
In most parts of Mexico, you can taste what the actual people ate there in as early as the 6th and 7th centuries BCE. You can see the dances they danced to, the music they played, wearing the traditional clothing that best represents their cultural identities. All this and more is why I believe the air to be different in Mexico. Why the mere act of walking through a seemingly unassuming pueblo can mean you are walking among legends, heroes, and villains. The history is not always pretty, but it is unquestionably alive and packed into nearly every brick and stone. Much like a city such as Krakow, Poland, can hold such rich history despite the arrival of so many other cultures, it is still very distinctly Polish, and nearly every street, corner, and square has a story or legend attached to it. So too were most major cities in Mexico layered, and even some smaller ones. History on top of history. One of the biggest things I am looking forward to describing besides all this history is my exploration into the Pueblos Magicos. If you thought the history and food was enough to pull you into Mexico already, then Pueblos Magicos will convince you to move there. These little towns are designated magic towns by the government due to a variety of reasons ranging from historical to cultural. To best get to know Mexico, these are the places to go. Even to local Mexicans, these places are seen as one of the most important expressions of their local identity and cultural representation. I will attempt to talk about and thus prepare anyone who wishes to visit all or any of the 132 current Pueblo Magicos throughout the episodes of this podcast. I could have very well called this podcast the Pueblos Magicos of Mexico and had more than enough material to cover a few years of work, but I decided to do all of the state's histories as well since they are equally fascinating. So let's see how all this goes. My aim in this podcast, as I have hopefully demonstrated in the preceding paragraphs, will be twofold. First, to tell and share with you, dear listener, the overarching story of Mexico, the cultures that lived there before the Spanish, its transition from colony to viceroyalty, then nation, the political chaos of the early years as a nation, and following its inexorable climb to dominant powerhouse of Latin American geopolitics making sure to sprinkle in its many tumultuous adventures with its American neighbors along the way. Secondly, I wish to highlight the facts, stories, and culture of the states themselves, for they are faithfully intertwined with the history of the nation as a whole. That is why I decided to call this podcast The Histories of Mexico, as there are quite frankly 32 characters that I will try to cover and wind in and out of our narrative. My aim will be to weave in the introduction of all of these states one at a time as they become prominent in our overarching narrative. For example, we will begin with the early migration of humans into the Americas, but not yet introduce any states as confirmed dating for most sites is still a hotly debated topic. And I wouldn't want to make some claim that a certain place was the first human settlement just to be disproven in a year or so and have to make a correction later. And so we will begin with a confirmable first that being the first major culture on the scene, the Olmecs. This means that our first episode on state histories will be all about Tabasco. Yes, that Tabasco. But no, the sauce is not made there. We will get all into it. Patience, unhasty ones, patience. Found within the state lies the ruins of La Venta, the once mighty capital of the Olmecs a society of people who will establish and spread some of the most recognizable traits and features we associate with all Mesoamerican cultures that came after. 
I will lead us to the point where the Olmecs are introduced, then break off into an episode all about Tabasco and the state and what history to touch, feel, and taste when visiting there. This podcast will attempt to walk the line between historically informative and touristically helpful. Eventually, I would like this to be a good listening companion for anyone visiting these beautiful states, be they foreign or local. Mexico has something to offer all manner of travelers, so I will do my best to keep everything interesting for everyone without getting overly touristy and making things sound like they're just carefully placed ads. Additionally, I will do my best to avoid getting bogged down in the potential minutiae of historical events, a task I find particularly tricky thanks to my fascination with the decisions of humans and the historical consequences of their actions. Ultimately, I will attempt to tell you the what to see, what to do, what to eat, and why it is important or interesting of every place that we are going to talk about. Admittedly, the first few states will be a learning curve on how to structure the episodes. I appreciate any feedback as I am relatively new to the podcasting game and am still fine-tuning my style and format. But hopefully the first episode isn't so bad that no one finishes it and tells me how to improve. Fingers crossed. Next episode, we will start with early human migration into the American continent and its evolution into pre-Olmaic cultures. We'll explore what advancements the early humans made to establish themselves and flourish in the valleys of Mexico. Then we will be introduced to the Olmecs before moving on to the next episode, where we will talk all about Tabasco, before coming back to the narrative to see the cities and monuments left behind by the Olmecs, discuss their abrupt decline, and catalog their many impacts on the people that came after them. But that is all for another time. I would like to thank everyone for all the support I have received in making this passion project come to a reality, and especially you, dear listener, for listening. And an especially huge credit to Los Tamborileros de Tukta Nakahuac for the amazing intro and outro music. Thank you for listening. Y que viva bien. Adios, and goodbye for now.